0: Our scripture reading for today comes to us from the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 25, all the way to verse 1 of chapter 26. And after that, we'll jump to Acts chapter 26, verses 24 to 32. If you're having trouble following along, it will also be projected behind me. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There was a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and I ordered the man to be brought When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils, as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, "'I would like to hear the man myself. "'Tomorrow,' said he, "'you will hear him.' "'So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice "'came with great pomp, and they entered "'the audience hall with the military tribunes "'and the prominent men of the city. "'Then at the command of Festus, "'Paul was brought in, and Festus said, "'King Agrippa and all who are present with us, "'you see this man about whom "'the whole Jewish people petitioned me, "'both in Jerusalem and here, "'shouting that he ought not live any longer.' But I found that he has done nothing deserving death, and he has he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, and therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever.
1: Thank you for the prayer, Michael, and uh, thanks for the reading once again, Pastor David. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Uh, Today we're in part 43 in our two-year-long series in the book of Acts. And after today, it looks like there will be only three more messages remaining in this series. Does that make you sad? To be honest, it makes me a little bit sad because uh, this series has carried me through the strangest years that I have ever experienced in my lifetime. And it's helped me keep things in perspective, daily reminding me That life for the faithful was always meant to be difficult, but that nonetheless, God's plan always prevails in the end. Has your experience been the same? I hope so. Uh, The way I see it is this. If your faith has been sustained over the past two years, despite the hardships you've been facing, uh, you shouldn't take that for granted. Right, the fact that you're worshiping God as a follower of Christ, even now, is nothing short of a miracle from God. Right? Your, your heart still beats for God because the Holy Spirit, who has the power to make dead hearts come alive, has been actively at work in your life. If that resonates with you, then you know, praise God. He's been especially gracious to you. And so as you humble yourself before God this morning, may he once again fill you with much joy and peace in knowing him. Amen? Amen. And hopefully the media team will figure out the mic situation here. I feel a lot of, a lot of feedback right now, okay? The nine o'clock setting was okay, it was good. Um, <clears throat> today's message will be broken down in two parts. Uh, I'm going to try to keep the speaking portion Relatively short, because I do want to share with you uh, a video clip at the end that kind of helps us connect the dots for us today, okay? So part one, the clash between two spiritual kingdoms. There's a clash here that I want you to observe between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. I want, I want to uh, show you how these two kingdoms sort of manifest its power in the, in the real world, okay? Part two. Paul's bold testimony and common responses to the gospel. Uh, So part one, the clash between two spiritual kingdoms. In our story today, we're introduced to two new characters in Agrippa and Bernice. So let me begin by saying a few words about them and also the family to which they belong. Uh, First of all, it's helpful to know that they were biologically brother and sister to one another. But unfortunately, they were also known to have been in this incestuous relationship during this point in time. Now, the Agrippa mentioned in this passage is actually full name Herod Agrippa II. Okay, I know I have some history buffs out there, okay? Herod Agrippa II. Now, the name Herod should really stand out to you because as you read through the New Testament that name keeps popping up doesn't it and if you're a good student attentive to what you're reading you should be asking yourself why are there so many herods in the bible that's a good question and the answer is this right the romans who had the true authority and power during this era they decided to view this herodian family which was a jewish family by the way They decided to view this family as a friend and ally for their own political purposes. And so they granted this Jewish family some degree of power over the region, right? As long as this family agreed to give their full allegiance to Rome, right, they will consider them a partner. But guess what? You know, by, by giving their full allegiance to Rome, during a time when the Messiah emerged, right, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, breaks into history, what are the Herod's going to do? I mean, they can only stand opposed to the true king and to the work of his kingdom right, because of this unholy alliance that they've basically established. And this is why the Herods, right, this very powerful family, became known for their violence and corruption that carried on for multiple generations. If you do a simple search on Google, like... Uh, the Herodian family tree, or the Herodian dynasty, you'll be, you'll be quickly able to see that this dynasty all started with the man named Herod the Great. He was the first, I guess, father figure of that tree, okay? He's the one we read about in every Christmas story because he's the one who slaughtered, remember, many innocent babies in an effort to get rid of Jesus. Jesus. And so, instead of doing what every man is supposed to do, right, uh, being really committed to establishing a legacy of faith, he helped establish a legacy of rebellion against the one and only true king. And so, look at how his legacy unfolds. It was his son, Herod Antipas, who we covered a while back, right, who was the one who brutally executed John the Baptist, by having his head served on a platter, literally. So sometimes, you know, we don't like this, but sometimes, brothers and sisters, God's servants, no matter how faithful they are, they're asked to endure such cruel and unjust treatment. And so this kind of destruction of, you know, Herod, uh, this family, doesn't end there. It continues through the next generation. Herod Agrippa the first was a third-generation Herod, right? The grandson of Herod the Great, and he was the one who killed the apostle James with the sword, as is recorded in Acts chapter 12. It was another very brutal death. And once he saw that slaying the apostle James pleased the Jews, he imprisoned the apostle Peter as well. And if you remember, an angel of the Lord appeared to rescue Peter from prison. But here's how the story ends. Acts chapter 12, verse 21 through 23. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. And it says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory. And he was Eaten by worms and breathe his last. Brothers, sisters, that is the ultimate end of everyone who rejects God. And finally, in today's story, we see that Paul was given the opportunity to confront a fourth-generation Herod, Herod Agrippa II. And he did so in order to. Uh, not just defend himself, but to present the gospel to this family who had been opposing God, Jesus, for generations. And since you now know the history, you can see that this is essentially a clash between two leaders who represent two completely opposing spiritual kingdoms, right? On the one hand, you have the kingdom of darkness. On the other on side, you have the kingdom of light, and there's this clash that's happening I wonder if you ever thought of how evil can be made manifest through specific people and even through specific family lineages over multiple generations. This is one example of that. You know, it's it's true, absolutely true that our, that ultimately our struggle is not against as the Bible says, in flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but that doesn't mean that The spiritual forces of evil cannot be carried out by real flesh and blood people who are in powerful positions of authority in this world. It happens all the time. You know, Satan can and he does use family lineages as he did with this Herodian family to wage war against God's servants. And that's why part of my personal testimony, and for those of you who have heard it, you know, I try to highlight the fact that my father was the first man in his family lineage to become a follower of Christ. To me, that is no small matter. It's an example of how God can so graciously remove the curse of death that has plagued a family line for centuries. And begin a new work of creation and produce new life over multiple future generations. That's grace. And whenever you identify such a work of grace in your own family line, I would encourage you to celebrate it and give thanks to God for it. That's part of what I'd like for you to do, actually, in your upcoming CG meetings. I think that'd be a good exercise to do. It's like, where do you stand, brothers and sisters, in relation to the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light? And how has God removed the curse of death from your family so that you could be given the grace to know Him and serve Him? And what will you do to maintain this legacy of faith for multiple generations? And I'm not at all suggesting here that everyone in my family or in your family line is now guaranteed faith in Christ. But you see, there is a huge difference between being part of a family who willingly stands in in direct rebellion against God versus a family who, though imperfect, is committed to stand with and for God. And I'm telling you, especially you men, you need to take a clear stand. You got to wake up. Some of you literally. (laughs) You got to wake up. Every person and every family member Every family, every head of household, you need to ultimately decide where you stand in relationship to God and to his kingdom. It's important for you to do that. Are you going to follow the example of Herod, who was blinded by his love for the world and chose to establish a family dynasty that was marked by violence and rebellion and corruption, or... Are you going to follow the example of Paul, who is part of a legacy of faith rooted in the spiritual lineage of Christ? Brothers and sisters, let's make sure we have enough spiritual integrity that when people see us, no matter who they are, okay, even those in your workplaces, brothers and sisters, when they see you, that it will be clear to them as to who you are and what you stand for. Part two, Paul's bold testimony and common responses to the gospel. I'm going to highlight just two responses that I see here in this passage to Paul's testimony. Now, the reason why King Agrippa and Governor Festus chose to partner up in today's story was because they wanted something from each other, right? They were useful to each other. You know, King Agrippa was useful to Governor Festus because Festus knew that he couldn't just present this case to Caesar without a good justification for doing so, right? He needed something more concrete, and look, look at what he says, verse 25. See, but I found that Paul had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed, appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But, important, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. I don't know what to write, right? Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him together, I may have something to write. In other words, Festus was hoping that King Agrippa, who was well-versed in Judaism because he was a Jew, is more knowledgeable on matters relating to Jew and Christian relations. He was hoping Agrippa would help him draft the formal charges that Caesar would consider uh, acceptable because he didn't want to look like an incompetent governor, basically. So, Festus needed the Jewish king's help. That's how King Agrippa was useful. But it's also worth noting that King Agrippa uh, didn't need to bother at all with this case. He wasn't legally obligated to do anything. What happened here, he voluntarily called this meeting partly to satisfy his own curiosity. But, you know, based on what I read and what I know now of of, uh, this king, I believe that it was something more than that. I, I believe he used this occasion to flex his muscles, so to speak, Right, knowing that there would be you know, all these, well, that, that he could arrange this meeting so that all these important dignitaries could be present. You know, I, I said this to you before, but when assessing someone's character, I believe it's, it's best to assess people mainly based on what they do and not simply based on what they say. Of course, words are important too, but especially, you know, have you noticed in today's world, words don't mean much, right? Words get twisted so easily because people don't care much about the truth anymore. And so words don't mean much (laughs) more often than not, you know, when it comes to what people actually say to you. It's better to assess people based on what they actually do. And so if you look at this story today, you know, based, based on what Agrippa actually does, In our story, it's clear that he wanted to essentially show off his status before others. See, verse 23 It's important. It says, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Interesting word, uh, word choice there. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Right? They're putting on a, a great show, basically. And a pomp means to have a showy appearance, right? And the Greek word that's translated as pomp is fantasias. Okay, fan, don't, don't check me on that, Hugh. I think it's fantasias. So the accent's on the, the third syllable or something. Phantasias, which is where we get the word fantasy, right? Fantasy. And so one way to think of pomp is to think of it as an empty Fantasy. It's essentially a mirage that may initially appear to be something so attractive and incredible, but it quickly fades. You know, based on what I've read about King Agrippa, it's, it's very likely that he suffered from some form of an inferiority complex. Right? As was mentioned earlier, his father died prematurely as part of God's judgment, eaten by worms, okay? So he became king at a very young age, the age of 17, to be exact. And because of his young age and inexperience, he was only given authority over a small region compared to his predecessor. So that, that could have easily damaged his young ego. One commentator actually writes this, Agrippa's kingdom was relatively unimportant, but he made up for it by visual theatricality and pageantry. It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, when you know that there's truly nothing about you that's all that impressive, what do, you, what do you do? You try to compensate for it by flexing your muscles whenever you can. At least that's what guys tend to do, right? Uh, wives, I'm sure you've caught your husband's flex before the mirror occasionally. Yes, wives? I confess I've done it, you know, a number of times. thing is this. The more out of shape we are, right, the harder we have to flex. (laughs) It's like there's a six-pack in there somewhere, right? The harder you have to flex. That's what Agrippa is doing here. He's so insecure that he's flexing really hard. Now, in contrast... To the pompous display of power and wealth, Luke, the author, wants us to picture Paul. See, Paul stands in stark contrast to what's going on. Paul, think about it. He would have looked so pathetic compared to the well-dressed dignitaries that filled this beautiful hall, right? Remember that he had spent the last two years in prison. And so think of how unimpressive he would have looked in comparison There's only one description of the Apostle Paul recorded in ancient literature outside of Scripture. And it reads like this. He was a man short in stature with a bald head. That's not why I shaved my head, by the way, okay? No relation. Bowed legs. Ew. Right? In good condition, though. Eyebrows that met unibrow. A fairly large nose and full of grace. At times he seemed human. At other times he looked like an angel. And see, this is a a description when Paul was healthy and in good condition, okay? And yet, he still sounds very unattractive, right? So imagine what he would have looked like after two years in prison. He was the exact opposite of showy and pompous and proud. We don't have uh, time today to look at Paul's testimony in detail, and that's the portion that Pastor David uh, jumped over, if if you're paying attention. Uh, See, but Paul knew... That God's calling upon his life was for him to testify before Gentiles and kings, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. So he used this special occasion, right, knowing who was going to be before him, to not only state his innocence and defend himself, but really to bear witness to his Savior. In other words, he didn't just make this into a legal defense, he used this as as an occasion to share his personal testimony. Of faith. One commentator put it this way, the, the strategic nature of the moment is better appreciated when we remember that up, up until this point, the spread of Christianity had been mainly among the working class and the poor. In a highly class-stratified society, it was very difficult for the lower class to share their faith with people of the upper classes. Thus, an opportunity like this is worth its weight in gold. And of course, Paul knew that. God told him that he's not just going to preach to just Gentiles, but the kings. So Paul basically, you know, carpe diem, right, sees the opportunity. He sees the moment, and he shared his faith testimony. And, you know, because of the moment here, that that could be one reason why Luke, the author, chose to include so much of the details of Paul's speech. But again, we don't have time to cover all the details. But out of everything that Paul says... What I, what I don't want you to miss today is that in spite of his humble and even pathetic appearance, Paul boldly declares before this impressive audience that God sent him as a messenger. And hear this, I'm quoting him, that their eyes could be opened and that they may turn from darkness to light and receive forgiveness of sins. He even says that he wishes that all who hear him today might become such as I am, except for these chains. Amazing. Like, if you look like and smelled like a homeless person off the street, would you have the courage to speak such words to the most revered and most wealthy and most powerful people in our world today? takes a lot of guts to speak this way. I mean, you would immediately be ridiculed and considered a complete buffoon for speaking such nonsense. And that's exactly the kind of response Paul initially gets from Governor Festus, right? (laughs) I like how Pastor David read earlier. But Governor Festus, in hearing Paul speak, he responds with, You are out of your mind. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Has anyone responded like this to you before after you shared the gospel with them? You are crazy. You are out of your mind. If they have, you don't need to be discouraged, right? You're in good company here, right? You know, people respond this way when their vision is so limited when they're nearsighted, when they're spiritually blind, and all they can see is the things right in front of them. All they can see and appreciate are the things they see in this world. You know, Festus would, of course, thought, you know, why would anyone want to be like you? Have you seen yourself in the mirror, Paul? Don't you realize how pathetic you actually look? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what part of Scripture would you turn to to regain perspective when the when the world mocks you and ridicules you for your faith and deems you truly unimpressive? Quick, quick think of a passage. A passage that came to my mind was 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul wrote that. That's what kept this man sane. This kind of big God theology. Now let's see how King Agrippa responded to Paul. King Agrippa responds with, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? In this short time, you have? And this is after Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, but I'm speaking true and rational words, and he, and he, (laughs) he puts the king on the spot, so it makes the king feel very uncomfortable probably, like he says, for the king, you know, king, you know about these things, and to him, to you I speak boldly, king, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, you know, he, he uh, speaks directly to him. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Right? In front of all these important people. King Agrippa, I know you believe. Oh my goodness, what's going what's to do? Like the spotlight's on him now. Well, how is he going to respond? And he responds with, Paul, in a short time, you persuade me to be a Christian? Really? See, because the king was a Jew, he already had a decent knowledge of Paul's teachings. But just like the Felix from two chapters ago, he, in his foolishness, he chose to delay. He chose to Spiritually procrastinate. Have you ever had someone respond this way to you after you shared the gospel with them or after you invited them to you know attend your small group or attend a Sunday worship? If they have again, don't be discouraged because you're in good company. This is a very common response by people who have much to lose in this world. See Agrippa is trying to save face and not make himself look like a fool in front of these very important people of his day. But think about it, think of the people in our day. You know? People in our day they have so much to lose if they choose to identify with Christ, don't they? You know, identifying with, as a Christian in our day no longer no longer has any social benefit. It actually you know carries no social advantage, only disadvantage from a worldly point of view. So people have so much to lose, and so of course you'll have more cases where they next time. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you for the invitation. After reading Agrippa's response, the passage that immediately came to my mind was Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Unfortunately, neither Festus nor Agrippa repented of their sins and turned to Christ in our story today, but I want to be clear that That doesn't mean Paul's testimony was a failure, okay? Because the success of our testimonies is not based on people's response to them, but in how faithful our testimonies reflect the reality of sin and judgment and our need for God's grace. So don't be discouraged when you receive such responses, but seek to be faithful and how you share your faith and your testimony of Christ before others. In closing, like I said, I want to share a video uh, with you. And this is a video of a a fairly well-known evangelist sharing the gospel to a stranger who, in my mind, resembles King Agrippa, not in her appearance, but in the way she responds to the message. But then, after, after a few minutes, she becomes exposed, and she's made vulnerable to the Word of God, that pierces her heart, and so that's a special moment I want you to watch. The ending is pretty moving, uh, especially if if it's something you can relate to uh, from your own personal experience, so let's watch it together, and afterwards, I'm going to come up and close us in prayer.
2: Are you afraid of
3: death somewhat it's a very interesting topic i think the the fact that we can't know what happens after death is what makes it scary for a lot of people
2: why do you think you can't know
3: i mean death is the final barrier that you can't come back from when you pass through it
2: have you ever put together an appliance without reading the instruction book and made a mess of it oh yeah definitely The, the instruction book is essential for anything the maker knows best and gives you the instructions how to make the appliance work the Bible is God's instruction book that makes sense the Old Testament God promised to destroy death the New Testament tells us how he did it did you know that I did not have you ever studied the Bible no let me tell you what the Bible says the reason you die is because God has given you the death sentence it says the wages of sin is death in other words sin is so serious to God he's paying you in death for your sins it's what we've earned do you think you're sinful enough for God to be justified to put you to death? I would hope not. And this is the mistake most people make. They think God is just like us, that he's got our moral standard. But the Bible says he's morally perfect. So you think you're a good person?
3: I would hope so. I, I do my best
2: to be a good person. So how many lies have you told in your life? I don't think that's the number most people would be able to quantify. Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small, in your whole life, irrespective of its value?
3: Not on purpose.
2: Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah. Love your mum?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Would you use her name as a cuss word? No. You'd never do that because that would dishonor her. It would disrespect her, but you haven't honored the God that gave you a mother or gave you life. You've used his name in the, pl- in the place of the S word, which is called blasphemy. It's very serious in God's eyes. So serious it's punishable by death. So I'm giving you the standard that God's going to judge you with on judgment day. Jesus said if you look with lust, you know what lust is? Mm-hmm. If you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with lust? I don't believe I have. Have you ever hated somebody? I'd have to say yes. Well, the Bible says, he who hates his brother is a murderer. That's how high God's standards are. Let me give you a quick summation. Read. this isn't judging you. This is for you to judge yourself. you are told me you're a liar, a blasphemer, and a murderer at heart. That's how God sees you. So if He judges you by the Ten Commandments, we've looked at five of them, on judgment day, you're gonna be innocent or guilty.
3: Oh, well, God would consider me guilty for that.
2: Heaven or hell?
3: Sounds like hell to me.
2: Does that concern you?
3: I know I should say yes, but if those are God's standards, then so be it.
2: It may not concern you, but Red, it horrifies me. I've just met you, but I care about you. I even love you. I hardly even know you, but I want I want to see you in heaven. The thought of you ending up in hell takes my breath away. It's so terrible. Death is evidence that God is serious about sin. Mm-hmm. Do you know what God did for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? I don't believe I know. You probably do, but you don't understand it. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross? I have. Okay. It's as simple as this. You and I broke God's law, the 10 commandments. Jesus paid the fine. Just before he dismissed his spirit, he said, it is finished. It's a strange thing to say when you're dying, but he was saying the debt has been paid. We broke God's law, Jesus paid the fine. Red, if you're in court and you've got speeding fines, the judge will let you go if someone else pays them. He'll say, Red, there's a lot of speeding fines here, but someone's paid him. You're out of here, you can leave. Even though you're guilty, you walk because someone paid your fine. And even though you and I are guilty before God of serious crimes, he can let us walk. He can forgive us legally because Jesus paid the fine, even the scales through his death and resurrection, and all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins, that means to be sorry for your sins and to turn from them, don't play the hypocrite, be genuine in your faith, and then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. You're like someone on the edge of a plane 10,000 feet up, they know they have to jump, they don't have a parachute, it's really scary, but this is their plan, they're going to flap their arms and try and save themselves. Well you and I'd say to that person, don't do that. It's not gonna work, just trust the parachute. So don't try and save yourself on judgment day by thinking you're a good person, because you're not, you're like the rest of us, you're a sinner. Simply transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. And the minute you do that, you've got God's promise. He'll forgive every sin you've ever committed, all those secret sins that nobody knew about, that God saw. He'll wash them away in an instant, not because you're good, but because God is good and kind and rich in mercy. Is this making sense? It is. So Red, if you were to die today, and God gave you justice, you'd be justly damned. There are two things you must do to be saved. You must repent and trust alone in Jesus. When are you going to do that? I can't say I have
3: a definite answer, but I'm sure it is something I would want to do someday.
2: Well, think of it like this. You're on a plane 10,000 feet up. If you jump, you're going to hit the ground at 120 miles an hour. You have to jump. I say you, are you going to put the parachute on? You say, oh, it's something I'm going to consider one day. The best thing I can do for you would be to hang you out the plane by your ankles for five seconds. Pull you in and you'll say, oh, give me that parachute. This is terrifying. And what I've tried to do is hang you out eternity by your ankles just for a few minutes so you get fear in your heart because that fear is your friend, not your enemy. If it makes you put on a parachute, it's doing you a favor. And if it makes you come to Christ and say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, it's doing you a great favor. Bible says through the fear of the Lord men depart from evil and we'll never let go of our sins as long as we think we're good people or we procrastinate that is, we put things off so I want you to think about it with this sense of sobriety what if you died today what if you died tonight 150,000 people die every 24 hours so when do you think you'll get right with God don't feel pressured by me but be pressured by common sense okay when do you think you're gonna get right with the Lord
3: I know the correct answer is right now, but faith is a big thing to a lot of people, and I would need to come to that answer on my own, eventually.
2: Well, let me just tell you something about faith. I'll I'll teach you a little lesson about faith that may really help you, okay? Mm -hmm. Do you live in this area? I do. What are you studying at the school? I'm currently majoring in English. Okay. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe you're from this area, or that you're majoring in English. If I don't have faith in your integrity, that you're speaking the truth, it's an insult to you as a human being. And so don't insult God with a lack of faith and just say, I trust the Lord. He gave me life. He gave me my, my brain. He gave me my eyes. He gave me my ability to breathe, the blueness of the sky, the love of a family. All these things are a gift from God. And so have faith in him, trust him with all your heart. You know, we trust pilots, we trust taxi drivers, we trust doctors, we trust surgeons, and all those people can let us down, but God will never let you down because he has no sin. It's impossible for God to lie, the Bible says. And that's wonderful news for you and I, We can believe everything he says in this word. So you're gonna think about what we talked about? I will. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Red, I noticed a number of times you teared up, you had tears in your eyes. Why is that?
3: I was raised in a Christian family so you know part of what you said is very familiar.
2: Something's happening in your heart isn't no. it? It seems so. So all I can say is the Bible says genuine sorrow for sin is pleasing to God. The Bible says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Do you know what contrition is? No. means to be sorry for your sins. That's what a judge looks for in a criminal. If the criminal's sorry and he sees a tear in his eye, the judge will give him mercy. So get before the Lord and say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And he won't despise that. He'll he'll greet you with open arms and forgive you and give you a new heart with new desires. Can I pray for you? (laughs) Of course. Father, I pray for Red that this day she'll come before you with a good and honest heart and understand not only your justice and your anger against sin.
1: Let's pray together. Dear Father, we know very well that we ought not to be enamored by the pomp, pageantry, and empty fantasies this world has to offer. And yet, we confess that in our weakness, we sometimes struggle to see what is promised beyond this world. So we thank you for leaving us today with a clear testimony of the life that is promised for us in Christ and helping us see more clearly the empty fantasy of what the world offers us by contrasting it with the bold testimony of your faithful and humble servant. But as we have been called to live a life that is set apart for your glory, may you continue to empower us by your Holy Spirit, that we may stand firm in our faith and never feel ashamed of the gospel of grace by which we have been saved. We confess we are weak, but we know that you are strong. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We'll stand together and give God praise.